Your job is to tell the truth. That's your job as a journalist. And if you can't do that, you're in the wrong job. That it wasn't my job, that it isn't our job to be popular. It was interesting to me how they fit together as a book. I mean, I'm not nearly smart enough to have done that on purpose. Welcome all, it's episode 75 of Behind the Lines here on The 42 with me, Gavin Cooney. Now what with this being an arbitrarily big milestone, episode 75, uh, we're going to take a pause for breath and reflect on some of our favourite moments from the series throughout 2021 so far. If you are unfamiliar with this show, uh, every week I chat at length with a writer about sports, their career and about their favourite pieces of sports writing. Uh, We've done 74 episodes to date. There's a whopper of a back catalogue available. It features the likes of David Walsh and Roy Thompson and Rick Riley and Paul Howard, Malachi Clerken and Daniel Taylor and many, many more. Now, the show is exclusive to members of The 42 and you can access uh, the show's full archive along with new episodes every week for just a fiver a month or €42 per year by subscribing at members.the42.ie. So let's look back at some of the moments of the year so far. Uh, We'll kick off with Simon Cooper. He's a columnist for the FT and the author of a host of iconic football books, including Football Against the Enemy and Soccernomics. And he told us what he learned from one of our own, Eamon Dunphy. Yeah, I think when I was about nine or ten, um, my dad, who's also very interested in sport, uh, as was my mother, which I think helped that um, they took sport very seriously. My dad got me Eamon Dunphy's Only A Game, which had been very well reviewed and well received in the 70s. And it's his account of being a footballer at Millwall, second division club at the time, really hard scrabble life, hard scrabble club. And Dunphy, uh, you know, you know, he's become a famous journalist since. He uh, he was extremely thoughtful and articulate and self-reflective, but he wrote very clearly with a journalist called Peter Ball. And so, I mean, I was a kid. I for me, footballers were heroes. They were superhumans. They were like Spider Man. And Dunphy says, no, footballers are are people. It's you know, we're very complicated, three dimensional people like everyone else. And for me, this was a bit of a shock. And it's something I, I see with football fans often. They still don't see that. They uh, talk about someone like Mourinho or Pogba as if they're in some ways from a different species than us. They're either villains or super supermen, but they're not people. And so Dunphy taught me always to understand the athlete as a person with all the complexity that comes with that. And... I was reminded of the contrary when my sons here in Paris, the massive PSG fans, when they were about 10, twin boys, invited to a friend's birthday at the Parc des Princes, the PSG ground. Of course, big thrill. And PSG, you can do adventure games at the ground. I think a lot of football clubs do that now. It's a money earner. So they have this adventure game and they're coming out of the stadium. And suddenly Edison Cavani, the, the striker, stops in his sports car and he's got some business at the stadium. So these 10, 10-year-old boys surround Cavani's car they're banging on the windows and one of the dads who's there sends me the video so that I I see all this and they're shouting to each other look it's Cavani it's Cavani and Cavani is being quite polite and friendly and he's going like this because this happens to him obviously 10 times a day and what I realize is none of these boys has any sense that Cavani is a human being they they they're talking about him as if he's not there and I think this is not just because they were 10 years old. This is quite a, a common thing. And I mean, I, I've written this new book about FC Barcelona, which is coming out in probably about September. 
And one of the things I try and talk about there is how footballers actually live, what their lives are like. And what are their lives like? I would imagine that that phenomenon that you describe with Cavani can be quite corrosive and possibly dehumanising. Yeah, uh, Barcelona have quite a lot of psychologists working there. And uh, one woman I spoke to, a psychologist, said she used exactly that phrase, it dehumanises. But she says it's not the footballers necessarily who dehumanise themselves, it's the fans who dehumanise the footballers. Uh, Because when, for example, the footballer is in a restaurant with his wife or his girlfriend, with his kids maybe, and 15 people come up at different points to take a selfie with him. And these people aren't really thinking he is a person with a, a spouse and children who, you know, wants to have a meal with his family like we all do they think no look it's Cavani let's go and you know and so the footballer learns to distrust and fear and see as irritating fans because fans are an irritant fans are sometimes they're shouting abuse so Wayne Rooney has talked about he couldn't go to the supermarket anymore so people say why do footballers live in this kind of why do they close themselves off well when Wayne Rooney went to the supermarket still Somebody would come up and say, oh, you're a traitor because you left Everton or um, I hate Man U, so I hate you. And so you stop going to the supermarket. So footballers learn to detach from the rest of the world and live in this bubble where they only meet other celebrities. And um, when they go to a nightclub, there is security around them. The security walks them to the toilet if they need to go to the toilet. And so they live in this completely separated environment. It's not necessarily what they want, but it's what they're forced on. And it's become much worse since the smartphone because now you might not be at the footballer's table, but maybe you're recording his conversation or you're filming him with his children, that kind of thing. And so if you're on a night out with a footballer now, I'm told, um, the footballer's uh, entourage will confiscate your smartphone. They'll say, you know, give us your smartphone, we'll give it back to you at the end of the evening, etc. Yeah. Put Marcus Rashford in that context for me then, Simon, because I, I admire what he's done in the last year or so, so much. And now when I hear that, con- uh, uh, you explain that context in which he's been doing it, I find his empathy with normal people even more impressive. Yeah, I mean, footballers stop being normal nowadays very young, when they're about 11, 12, when they're you know, spotted for their potential and brought to an academy. I think with Rashford, he went to live in the Manu Academy when he was 11 or 12. And that's when they're separated. And it's much earlier than it was, you know, even in Rooney's generation or in suddenly much earlier than in Maradona's generation. So they stop being normal very early. And so their only contact with normal life is until the age of 11, their family and friends from that time. But even those people start to treat them differently. And this goes back a long time. Jeff Hurst said after his hat-trick in the 1966 World Cup final, his parents began treating him as a celebrity. So his par- his relationship with his parents was broken by that, was damaged by that. And so the people around you, they're also jealous. They all want something from you. So it becomes very difficult. And what I find very uh, most admirable about Rashford, I think what he's done is, is magnificent. And it's that he has continued to think about the rest of the world because footballers are told from age 11, 12, no, no, don't worry about anything. Don't worry about money. Don't think about politics. 
because that will alienate some of your fans and so um, make it harder to get sponsorship. Don't think about anything except football because all we want is for you to become a football genius, make a lot of money for your family and for your agent and we'll take care of the rest. And so you get a situation that Messi, who you know, essentially became the family breadwinner aged 13 when they moved to Argentina, when they moved to Barcelona. Messi was a tax dodger doing illegal tax evasion, but he didn't know it himself because nobody says to Leo, oh, Leo, what do you think about this tax arrangement? They just yeah. say, Leo, you play football. We'll take care of the money. Yeah. Um, and just to go back to Eamon Dunphy then, you mentioned... a blinkered like that's essentially what footballers have to be they're encouraged like, now to be they're told to be blinkered yeah, yeah like it aim dunphy has this line it was like football is about self-deception which is an incredibly unsentimental and hard scrabble thing to read especially when you read the book at a relatively young age to what extent has that book informed your interviewing of footballers since i would imagine it it is a very 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 good reference point uh, what does he mean when he says football is about self-deception He's this, He's talking about uh, it being blinkered, you know, trying to spin yourself. It's, it's, it's essentially an act in trying to always be positive. You know, if you conceded a goal, so if you're the defender on the corner from which a goal is conceded, he can say, well, look, if we hadn't conceded in that, that corner in the first place, if the midfielder didn't give the ball away and so on. I think that's the context in which he use, uses it in. Yeah, you need this unnatural self-confidence to be able to do this very difficult thing against, you know, people who are very good at what they do and know that if you fail, you're going to be criticised everywhere. So you need this enormous natural self-confidence. One footballer in which I saw this, uh, who I I know somewhat, I wouldn't say I'm close, I I know him somewhat, so I have a sense of him, is Baldovane Zenden, who played for Chelsea, Newcastle, Barcelona. And I was always struck by, he had this self-belief, you know, I'm playing for Barcelona, I'm playing for Holland against Brazil in the World Cup semi-final. And of course I deserve to be here. And I think you need that attitude, that kind of lack of self-questioning to be able to succeed in those situations. Although all footballers, almost all, do have fear and self-questioning and fear of failure, but they have to be able to overcome it in a way that's more difficult for the rest of us. In terms of interviewing footballers, I've always tried to think when interviewing someone is what if he hadn't been good at football where would he be now uh what would Neymar be like if he had not been a good footballer what family what world what personality what socio-economic situation would he be in and I think that helps you understand the person as well if you see them not as a star but as a person who also happens to be very good at football and that has created deformations in his life and in his uh, his career path, his relationships with other people, but trying to understand uh, the person underneath it. Now from praise of Ireland and Irish journalists to the very opposite, uh, Sunday Times rugby correspondent Stephen Jones w- appeared on episode 66 of this series where the prevailing question of him was, well, what's your problem with us? There is a feeling among our listeners that you that you are effectively anti-Irish. Is that at all fair? Um, oh, blimey. Well, um, I'm I'm doing my best. Um, anti-Irish. At the at the end of the year, 
um, so, so say the reaction you get if I added them all up, it would be roughly um, probably twenty percent you're anti-Irish, twenty percent you're anti-Scottish. 20% you're anti-English and 40% you're anti-Welsh. Um, the stuff I get from people saying, I can't believe it. I just found out you were born in Wales. So the Welsh people are the worst. Um, just trying to think. I, I, th I think, I think now and again, um, for instance, lions, um, I, the Irish, the Irish get too caught up in it and too full of themselves. When, when Brian O'Driscoll was dropped by Ireland on the on the Lions tour to Australia, um, it was obvious it had to happen, and I was told by one of the selectors afterwards that it was the um, the shortest selection dis uh, dispute they had on tour. Jonathan Davis was playing so much better than Brian at the time. Uh, I remember Brian in the second test got a, was put away with in space and sort of subsided into the tackle and made me think that he'd temporarily maybe lost all the, the great, the greatness. Um, but the reaction to that made me think, hang on guys, if you don't want to be part of the Lions, the four home unions, if you think that every team should pick Irish icons, even past their best, especially if you don't actually bother, just tell everybody and we'll have a Brit team. Um, and you know, when, whenever you get um, an Irish tea, you know, you get uh, people picking their Irish team, and you, you, there's like 11 Irishmen in it, seven of which don't even deserve to be in the Irish team, sort of thing. So, that, that could be described as over enthusiasm, but sometimes it goes into you know, Ireland no matter what. Uh, it's as, it's yeah. as simple as that. You you were dropping O'Driscoll in two thousand and nine. I went I I looked this up and I found now look this is tongue in cheek but I found it uh in Hot Press magazine. Hang on, I've got it here uh, somewhere. Uh, Hot Press <laughs> Hot Press named you as the most anti-Irish person of all time. Now, granted, there is firmly tongue in cheek here. Uh, <coughs> Cromwell may have slaughtered people on a grand scale, and Edmund Spencer may have come close to recommending the extermination of the Irish. But neither man omitted Brian O'Driscoll from their 2009 Lions test teams. Stephen Jones did, and he has to live with that. Uh, yeah, don't worry. If you, you can tell hot press, whoever they are, I'm having considerable success in living with it. <laughs> I, I, uh, well, um, I can't remember whether, whether there was any reason at the time I should try and wind them all up. I don't think so. I, I, do you know, so I can't remember that. I, I remember there was a time when I think we got 750,000 hits on one thing, one story, which was bloody good. Um, no, I, I think probably I was probably out of order there. Um, mm. but out of order, may, maybe I was just trying to um, provoke some sort of debate. I don't think Brian had, was at all, well, I don't think he'd lost his um, mojo then. But by 2000, uh, by, by Australia in that too, he, de he definitely had. And um, I, I know that uh, the Irish reaction for that one really, really upset the Lions players and really upset the players who were picked 
in that in that test match. So sorry, in 2013. Yeah, 2013. Yeah. Okay. In the sense that what you say, um, look, the, the the guy was an absolutely unbelievable player. He not not many centers can play as well as him, um, and um, uh, and then also be a flanker and drive in and score tries. I, I just tell you one other thing that um, once appeared in the Telegraph. Wales played Ireland at um, uh, in I think it was either the Aviva or La- maybe the last year at Lansdowne, and he had a clash uh, in the centre with a Welsh player. I think it was Liam Williams. I'm not sure. Uh, and, and they had a clash. They both went down. But Liam Williams dislocated his shoulder. Brian, after protracted treatment, got up and played on. And the, the Welsh guy was carted off to be probably out of the game for three months. A guy called Oliver Brown in The Telegraph wrote a piece to say, well, we all knew what would happen then. The great old Driscoll got up and carried on, whereas the Welshman... Uh, had to go off. Well, he had to go off because the angle of the hit that they'd done happened to have dislocated his shoulder. It was nothing to do with O'Driscoll being any harder or any or any better, although he he was a hard guy. And it, this thing that 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 was when it goes mad. That's when the myth uh, gets comp- sorry, the legend becomes a myth that the angle they came in was the only reason why the Welsh guy had hurt himself. And mm. this guy was putting it down to O'Driscoll's indestructiveness. You're a man of very strident and uncompromising opinions. I have to say, like, as a personal opinion, that's kind of why I like why I like reading you every week. But to what extent do you make these opinions more trenchant and uncompromising to provoke a reaction? Or is this just always how you genuinely feel no the, the, what, 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 when you're the correspondent it's a different life the correspondent in any sport or political um if i'm if i'm the political correspondent of the bbc or or or, or the gaa correspondent the sunday times my great friend dennis walsh or someone like that you have to take a line that's what the correspondent does if you're doing a, a another piece you don't have to take a line but since since i first started i the the, the correspondent takes a line on something it is as simple as that if you're the number one writer on any sport uh and you the great correspondents like henry winter or Michael Henderson used to do brilliant cricket for the Telegraph, or or, or other people. Um, you have to take a line, and um, uncompromising, I think, is a is a is a is a a good adjective. What I hate is when someone is doing a piece and they give both sides. Really, that's okay. not what a correspondent does. If you're doing a, uh, uh, <clears throat> what you think. Is um, uh, is a is a, a a verdict on Eddie Jones's latest mad selection, or England's lucky win, or Ireland's fortunate unfortunate defeat. You have to say exactly why you're saying it. Uh, to be honest with you, in that occasion, I don't see the need to invent the other side of the argument if I don't if I don't hold out myself. Okay. Uh, another question from a listener, uh, Damien Mallon, asks about your use of Twitter and why you frequently block people. I don't take Twitter as seriously as some, let's put it that way. 
is a company regulation that we're on there. And the main reason that you're on Twitter is that you we're supposed to um, tweet out stuff that we've done and which they send us a link for. Um, this stuff got around about blocking people. I mean, I can, I think I've blocked sort of 30 people ever. Um, so I don't know if, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, there was a long time when I didn't even know how to unblock people, but mm. I, 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 I don't block people because nothing I've ever seen really has made me angry enough with anyone to block them, really, apart from people abusing my. There was a couple of times where people would start abusing my two sons because they realized that their Twitter accounts were, <coughs> were linked to me. But <clears throat> come on, does anyone take Twitter that seriously? I think, yeah, I think a lot of people do take it seriously. I like, I know it's not meant to be real life, but especially in the last few years, I think it has become real life. You know, I think it started steering life and reality more than perhaps it was ever meant to. And I think that's, I mean, the obvious present response for that, I think, is Donald Trump, you know, because like he would tweet stuff and then all of a sudden it's not only news, but it's actually policy. So I do think that people... And we're also, and I think it's worse now, but for the last year, we've all been shacked up at home and we haven't been able to see anyone. So I think it's, that is like the only real connected reality we have left left to us. Yeah, I, um, I, I, okay, look, I'm sure you're right. But I think that in that case, the sooner the lockdown's lifted, the better, really. Because uh, you know, the thing is, with, the thing is with Twitter, A, you get rumours that are complete rubbish and B, you get things like, oh, this vaccine's no good. So everybody reads that. Well, the vaccine's fine. So, you know, it's just ridiculous. Oh, look, up anyone I've ever offended on Twitter, I, I apologise. But, um, you know, the other thing is, I think sometimes um, people start it, then they don't like it when they get a rude reply. So, uh, look, anyone I ever offended on Twitter, I'm really sorry, but uh, I'm really not inclined to unblock anyone I've blocked uh, because I have to get the kids to tell me how to do it anyway. Now, among the many achievements in the career of ESPN's Wright Thompson, one stands out more than any. He is, of course, the only guest to appear more than once on Behind the Lines thus far. Uh, Wright Thompson rejoined us for a live episode with our members for St. Patrick's Day, and he delivered, among many other things, some fundamentally good gossip. Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods, they're not all that tight anymore. I and mean, one of the things I've always thought that was interesting, and I, you can't really blame anyone from this, for this, but, you know, Tiger came along pretty soon on the heels after Michael Jordan. And so all of his people, including Earl Woods and all the people at Nike, did what any of us would do. You have this transcendent, globally famous athlete who's dominant. And so you just look to best practices. You know, you just, what do we do? And so they, they molded Tiger's sort of rollout strategy in his public life very much after Michael Jordan's. The problem is, and... You know, and you can understand how this doesn't get brought up. But the problem is, is that Michael Jordan is an extreme extrovert and Tiger Woods is an extreme introvert. And it feels like, you know, is that Updike quote, the mask eats the face? It feels like there's some of that going on. So to answer your question, I think he, you know, I think with no one watching, he would have been just as focused and a, a lot of people wouldn't have. I didn't know that, that he was consciously molded after Michael Jordan. That's amazing. Yeah. And they get on, they seem like friends. I think they used to be. Oh, what happened? Can, we t- can you tell us what happened? Uh, 
I think Michael Jordan talked about him in my story. No way. They fell out over that. I, don't, I, I like to think it was something else. Okay. Well, I mean, tell us what you can tell us. Uh, <laughs> and obviously that we could possibly go off the record. I'm not sure what uh, my no, thing no, could say. But... No record. Uh, uh, no, I mean, that's all I know. I know that Jordan was very compassionately critical of him and my story. So I can't imagine that helped. And what can just remind us what, what did Jordan say about Tucker? Just that he, he just talked about like the, the you know, George, like Tiger's obsession with the Navy SEALs and Jordan compared it to when he wanted to go play baseball to feel closer to his dad. And then he just talked about how uh, Tiger was sort of desperate for everyone to forget everything that had happened and how that just wasn't going to happen. And some and other did, stuff. And did Jordan ring you about this after after all went down with Tiger? No, I know you don't. Uh, you don't. Jordan, Jordan, I think follows a page of the uh, British Royals when he, you know, never complain, never explain. Now that was the first of our members' events here on Behind the Lines, but there's plenty more scope for interaction through our WhatsApp group. It is in that group that listeners trade reading recommendations with with other listeners, even, and submit questions for our guests. You can join the group by subscribing and then by following the details in the episode description of this podcast. Uh, the biggest fan, undoubtedly, of the WhatsApp group is, of course, me, as usually your questions are a whole lot better than mine, as we learned when Argentinian journalist Marcela Mora Iarajo appeared on the show. Uh, Connor asks, uh, to what extent did the military dictatorship uh, effectively claim the 1978 World Cup? Like, uh, Which is a nice, handy question. So I've just literally been working on a documentary about the 1986 World Cup for uh, 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 an English production company and ultimately for FIFA. And there was a, a question about the dictatorship for every player, which I was, I'm not sure. But then we, we passed it to a journalist that we were interviewing. Um, and it was like, oh, blah, blah, dictatorship. He said, they love the dictatorship, don't they, those guys? <laughs> they really want to talk about it. In 1978, I think it's way, 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 way more justified. Um, something that I think is really important and that's not often mentioned in, with regard to the 1978 World Cup or the dictatorship generally in Argentina is that throughout most of last century, most of South America was in and out of military dictatorships. Democratic governments coexisted with military coups. Very complex reasons why most of South America was in and out of, of, of military coups. And, and, you know, 1970 Brazil, uh, 1966 Argentina had a military coup. Then we had a, a democratic government for a bit and then there was uh, another coup in the 70s. So the, 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 it, the relationship of the military and the World Cup is also complex and interesting in the sense that the World Cup had been adjudicated to Argentina before the coup. And at one point they thought of cancelling it, the military, because it sounded a bit like fun and, you know, laughing games. And then they thought, no, let's do, let's bank on it. And then, and at one point the resistance, the guerrillas and the left 
uh, also wanted to boycott it and cancel it because it seemed like handing the military something they could re rejoice on a plate. And then they also decided not to because it was a good way of getting Argentina in the eyes of the world and there was, you know, an opportunity to, I don't know, but ultimately, because they like football. I mean, there's a, I, I interviewed a, a woman whose appalling story was that she was detained in one of these clandestine detention centres with tortures and so on during the World Cup. And she was forced to watch the games as part of the rehabilitation programme. And then when Argentina won, she was taken with a group of detainees by the military to celebrate in the streets driven around um, and she she kind of it's an incredibly strong image but she says she asked for permission to step out of the, the open roof the little Persian and saw that sea of people thinking if I start screaming now help me help me I'm a disappeared would anyone hear me I, which of course they wouldn't, but that's always made me think. Actually, no one would ever hear you if you shout, "They pinch my wallet!" in, the, in a frenzied football crowd. You know, you can't, got no chance of any kind of real help unless, well, you know, it's yeah. a pretty, it's a, it's a pretty loud noise. But so Daleo's story, which is incredible, and it's the story of a lot of people. I mean, yesterday someone rang me saying there was a some sort of CNN podcast in the States. They're looking for somebody who didn't rejoice and celebrate the World Cup because they had a relative or a friend that was disappeared and detained. And through knowing what was going on, they didn't enjoy the football. And I'm like, um, good luck finding that person because ultimately the detainees were enjoying the football and they had written at great length about how weird this was for them. But you would have a perverse scenario where the torturer and the tortured would discuss the goals between, you know, uh, sessions or yeah. discuss the match. And that, I think, is both absolutely hideous, but also speaks of the extraordinary thing that is football. So we, we can't just ignore it or judge it or say that's wrong or that should, you know, football provokes a true emotional reaction in people and that's real and that's so real that we have to respect it and use it for the good i can see that your mouth has dropped open yeah that's an extraordinary story like so like you all it, from in our media anyway we hear a lot more about the 86 world cup than we do about the 78 world cup but it sounds like you know, it's. I I thought that the seventy eight World Cup might be tainted by its uh, association with that dictatorship and, and the horrors of that time, but perhaps it's not. Well, I think it kind of is in in many ways uh, tainted because uh, um, there were there was then a lot of talk about it being fixed, and there was a lot of uh, um, well, kind of moralizing pressure on the player. You know, there was there was. People say, to the, the players ended up taking the brunt for this. You know, why did you not refuse to play? And it's like, well, because I'm an athlete and what else could I do? You know, and, I, and I've witnessed a conversation over and over and have the Olympics in China and you go to the Olympians. Why are you going to go to China? It's a terrible country with a 
terrible human rights record. It's uh, South Africa in the eight, you know, there, there, there were boycotts and uh, arguably they worked. It's not an easy answer. I think the 78 World Cup was tainted for the allegations of, of uh, buying the game, especially the one against Peru, or not buying, but, you know, um, somehow, I don't know. The players all deny it. I believe the players. I think it's a difficult thing to do. I mean, our dealers, Aussie our dealers are to me once. I, d I don't believe it happened, not because I don't consider the military capable of doing it, but I just don't see how. But at the same time, for those of us who lived here and lived through it, it really was a happy uh, occasion. Mm. And then we, we, we need the, the, there is a guilt about celebrating. I mean, I wrote a thing about, um, when my father died, I wrote a piece about him and football and my relationship with him and so on. Remembering that at the, the World Cup final, he took us, I was with some friends at his house and he drove us back into town and we got stuck. We couldn't move any further after about an hour and a half it, with the papers and the ticker tape and the singing. And it was the same stretch of road where this woman, Graciela de Leon, was taken to a restaurant. Yeah. When I met her, I was an adult, and she told me, I said, oh my God, because she, she literally described where it was and the restaurant they went to, and the, you know, she scribbled something with her lipstick on the mirror in the restaurant saying, this will be my single act of resistance. Just said, help, you know, I am, we, we are disappeared, uh, and then just went back to the table. and. I, as an 11-year-old, had no idea she was there. So one would like to think, of course, if you don't leave, you bumped into me at that problem of great, you know, at that time of great troubles, I would have solved your problem or my dad would have said something to the police or something. But in fact, there is a powerlessness to what we can do Um which is really difficult to stomach. And so it would be really easy to say, how dare I celebrate that World Cup now knowing what was going on on the same stretch of road. I can't do that because I do think for better or for worse, there was a truce. There was peace for a month. There were, there were no bombs and no shootings. And, and I think no disappearance, but jury's still out. And so... Um, if we just focus on the football, which we can do by watching the games again, it was really quite good. I mean, it was a, you know, there were the, it, it was great. And so I, for me personally, we owe those players two huge debts of gratitude. One for winning the World Cup, which is just such a fun thing to happen. And two for, um, being a part of this lull in the in the horror, you know, it was a really shitty time to live here. It it was like, but it was really awful. And in the middle of it, there was a month of utter utter fun and joy. And um, I think that's I think ultimately that's a good thing. I mean, if I was now to have to vote or organise or say 
should we have a World Cup in certain circumstances? I probably would say no. I would kind of say no anyway about World Cups because they're expensive and, and difficult. But the reason why the 78 World Cup became tainted after the event is partly because of this sort of moralizing, how dare you be happy when something bad is going on, which is one of the things that humans like to, to do and say to each other. And also because somehow the 86 World Cup, which should also be quite tainted for uh, the handball, if you like, feels open and transparent. It's like if the 78 World Cup was somehow rigged, it was done in backroom deals by powerful men in secret, conniving in an exploitative way with the players, not the, the talent, not participant, not knowing. And that's kind of disgusting. Whereas if the 86 World Cup was somehow not fairly gotten, it was done literally by him in full view of the entire world, just openly yeah. saying, I, this is how I play, and if you don't like it, stuff it. But There's a, there's um, a kind of honesty it's my and game, yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. Transparency. Okay, let's finish with a clip from our most recent episode. This is Michael Calvin recalling the extraordinary experience of co-writing the autobiography of Welsh rugby legend Gareth Thomas. But with Gareth... You know, he really committed to it. And, and, you know, we did some pretty powerful things. You know, we were in tears you know, a lot together. We used to, we, we, we had one, we had a week around his mum and dad's house. And uh, <laughs> his mum came in one day. He just, we were lying on the floor and I've got a big bloke and, and obviously Gareth's a big lad. And we're lying, we're lying, on the, lying on the floor and looking at one another. And Gareth had just um, showed me it was a text from his ex-wife and it was in the form of a, a song and the lyrics were, were so pertinent to their story because the key question for Gareth was, look, if you'd had a child, because um, his wife mis miscarried several times, if you'd have had a child, would you come out? And he said, no, but the, the so anyway, this, this a DVD of this 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 a singer, um, he, he just burst into tears, and he burst into tears. So I'm bur I burst into tears as well. And so it's if you picture the scene, right? The, the, the door opens and his, his mum pops her head around, and she says, uh, she looks at us and we go, "Cup of tea, boys." So she disappears, <laughs> you know, and it was just like. Oh wow, you know that, and so that's a really powerful thing. And but that that on that on that particular sort of section, there was one day where it was it was really mind blowing. Really, we spent the we spent the morning um, in the graveyard of a village church where he used to, uh, when it was dark, lived he lived close by, and you know, he used to go into the graveyard and shout and scream at the walls of the church. You know, why God? Why me? Why are you pushing? Why are you pushing me? What do you want from me? And we were, we were sitting, it was, it was sort of drizzling and we were sitting on this like sort of park bench and it must look bizarre because like there were these sort of old biddies walking by and I've got my, my tape 
and I've got it up to his mouth and we're chatting away. And I'm thinking, well, what are they thinking of us? But, but at that stage, Gareth was saying, well, I wanted to be in that particular grave. I imagined myself in that particular grave with, you know, and you know, it was inscribed, you know, I can't remember the name of, 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 the, you know, of the deceased, but it was pretty profound. So then we said, right, okay, we're going down the coast and we drove about, about five, six miles down the coast into the Bristol Channel. And this is where he's going to jump to his death. So we parked up in a farmyard and walked for about a mile and a half across these fields towards the, the promontory where he was going to jump. And, I, you know, the idea was I wanted to recreate it and recreate the emotions of it. And so he said, well, I got to this point. We got to near the cliff top. And it was an onshore breeze. So uh, it sort of hollowed out uh, like a little square where he lay and that on, that, on that particular morning his clothes off apart from his pants and he's just lay there for 20 minutes contemplating essentially the end of his life and uh so i said right okay we'll do that and you know, kept our gear on thank god but it was it was really powerful and i said just something made me ask i said where were you going to jump from and he said oh actually it was just down there and he pointed about i suppose about five six meters away and there was a right on the edge there was a a, a, a rock about a meter square something like that and i just said so impulsively i said right let's go and stand on it and uh there's a drop of about 250 feet uh, and it was bizarre because we we did so and i had my tape up next to him uh, uh you know and as i said it was you know, the, the prevailing wind was on shore so when we finished you could barely make out anything we said to one another but the weird thing was we had complete, both of us had complete recall about what we said. It was, it was one of those, you know, weird moments. And, you know, Gareth said then it was, it was you know, Gareth, Gareth, we took actually the only selfie between you know, both of us because I'm bloody useless at technology and he got over my phone. And so we, we, we did the photograph. It's the only one we took together. I've still got on the phone. And um, on the way back, he was saying, that's it, that's closure. I'm never going to go back there again. I needed to do that. And I thought, yeah, but what have I put you through? And um, that night we were back at his mum and dad's house and his dad used to watch TV on this sort of lounge, this little leather lounger. And I saw him and he looked grey. Absolute great, absolutely great. Sort of parchment. His face had this sort of parchment quality. And the following morning, I asked his then partner Ian, "So, what was he like?" Uh, and he said, "We didn't sleep. I know that he said he was just, you know, spaced." And I said to Gareth then, "I said, look, mate, if I've pushed you too far, you got to tell me." And he said, "Fine, no, it's okay. I'll be all right. I needed to do it." And that's, I suppose, where the responsibility of being a, a co-writer comes in. How far do you push your man or your woman to actually get what you want? Because I'm not daft. I know that was going to mm. be a absolutely massively powerful element of the book. Was there any guilt no. on your part driving back in the car? No. Uh, well, okay. and actually, actually driving back with him, there was. Uh, it wasn't guilt. It was. It was concern. I think rather than guilt. Um, and it is, as I say, it's such an intimate process if you do it 
right? And I suspect it was, you know, going back to Vincent and, and, and Paul, I suspect it was a similar type of relationship. I don't know. I've never asked Vince about it, funny enough. But when um, the, the final chapter of that book, I didn't tell him about. Um, and it was uh, it was an open letter from him as a 40-year-old gay man to him as a 16-year-old guy who was unsure of his sexuality and certainly how, uh, how that would play out publicly. And so I wrote this, and, and I, know, I knew him so well. And so this thing just flowed out. And that was the end of the book. That was the final chapter of the book. And it was the last chapter I saw him. So rather than bang it over um, an email, I said, well, it was, it was just sort of just getting in the summer. I said, well, I'll come over, have a glass of wine, and, you know, I'll show you it. And I'll bring you a whole copy. So I did that. And, you know, so I'm on the, on the patio getting rid of my uh, Chardonnay, whatever it was. And he comes barreling out of the house and grabs me in a, like a bear hug. And he starts sobbing and he doesn't stop sobbing for like five minutes. It was just, and you know, the, the, weird, the weird thing was, I thought, yeah, I've got him. I've absolutely got him. And that, that funny enough was, um, was a really sort of, that yeah, was a fulfilling moment. And also the other fulfilling part about that, and you know, it's why I asked people to go the extra mile. It's like, you know, Joey, when I did Joey Barton, I said, right, one of my preconditions for doing this book with you is we go to prison together because I want, I want you to, I want to be with you when you're in that environment because that'll tell me a lot about you. Um, but, but with, with Gareth, you know, we said, and funny enough, there was the same sense of purpose in the book I did with Dylan Hartley where, you know, over time, you know, rugby such a brutal sport. It, this, it was eating him alive. You know, I, he gave me his um, medical records, his full medical records, and it was horrendous, horrendous. You know, couldn't go to the toilet after matches. You know, couldn't sit properly. You, you couldn't wipe, wipe his own backside. Concussion issues, and we wrote that book because we wanted we wanted to highlight the um, concussion debate in rugby, which I think it did, coming out as it did. Um, but going back to, to, to Gareth, when we were, and this, is, this sounds really trite talking about it now in, in isolation, but you know, when we were going through some of those days, we, we actually said, well, look, if we get this right, we could save someone's life. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous, but, you know, blimey, it, it did transpire that, that that actually happened because we did a speaking tour after when the book was published. And almost on a nightly basis, people were coming up and sharing their deepest stories. You know, we had one guy come up. We, were, we did a gig in a church in Bath. It actually was a, this was a doozy this night because there were two, there were two incidents. The first one was um, a guy had been waiting, because, you know, at the end of it, you do the line, you sign the book and all that. It was a guy who... Um, was waiting to have his book signed. He got there, and as soon as he got there, he just grabbed um, Gareth and said, look, I've got to ask you this question. What did you see when you were contemplating jumping off that, that cliff? And he said, well, and Gareth said, well, 
to be honest, I saw my mum and dad around my grave weeping. And this guy said, yeah, I saw my kids. I went to Western Supermare. And with that, he went. He, he went so quickly, he forgot his book. Right? And I ran after him to give him his book. And we said afterwards, Brahmi, he hadn't told anyone that. He'd obviously not told anyone. And that was, that was quite profound. And, and on that same night, there was a, a lady who was in the front row, on the front row of pews. And um, she couldn't take her eyes off of Gareth. And again, she was in the queue at the end. And she grabbed him as well and started like howling, sobbing. And uh, Gareth sort of looked over her shoulder towards me and went, get him, get him. Yeah. So I've got her as well. And that's when you feel another human being just sobbing so much in your arms, it really you know, has a huge effect on you. But anyway, her story was that uh, she'd um, uh, undergone gender change and she was wearing a, a, Wales, a Wales rugby top and she was talking about it and she broke down because she said I was a great disappointment to my mother because she wanted me to play rugby for Wales yeah. as, a, as a man, as a boy and you know well, how do you rationalise that but she she found some strength by reading the book and I, that that really that that really that really was really profound for me i think and that's it thanks a lot for listening if you are already a subscriber thank you so much for supporting what we do it's greatly appreciated and if you do want to subscribe and get access to the whole uh, 75 episode archive and a new episode every week the address is members.the42.ie and it will cost you five a month at most with the annual subscription. A little bit cheaper at, fittingly, €42 Euro per year. Uh, thanks again for listening. We will be back next week with another great guest here on Behind the Lines. But until then, take it easy. <laughs>